Coming up, it's Counterculture with Marie Buskey. A look into the world of critical social justice, woke culture, and more on RCR. Reality Check Radio. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Welcome to Counterculture on Reality Check Radio. I am your host, Marie Buskey, and this is the place where we discuss the issues through cultural lens and how ideologies are impacting our everyday lives. On this week's show, we welcome back two returning guests to RCR. First up is Trevor Loudon. Trevor is a New Zealand writer and commentator living in the United States and has been a vocal defender of freedom and is acutely aware of the impact of Marxist theory on modern culture, politics and current governance. I know Trevor and I will have plenty of things to discuss. I'm really looking forward to it. And then I welcome to Counterculture for the first time, Karina Shields, the grounded voice of Common Sense as Auntie Heihei on TikTok and Twitter, as well as the Plain Sight blog. We'll be discussing whether Māori have an identity crisis and why the Māori elite insists that they all speak with a single voice. Marty Gibson will also be along with our roundup of the legacy media stories of the week, as well as a little bit extra here and there, and I'll finish things off with the woke word of the week. It's going to be a busy morning, but I can sneak some time for a little bit of feedback here on RCR. First up from the text machine, 2057, listening to your interview with James Fishback and what an inspiring man and topic, Marie. Imagine if every New Zealand high school student became proficient in the style of debating. We'd all be a country of critical thinkers in no time. James was amazing. If you didn't catch last week's interview with James Fishback, the most inspiring young man I've spoken to in a very, very long time, definitely well worth checking out. Go and check that out on our replays. Next up is John. Uh, John is saying, I'm so enjoying all about RCR. However, I love, big love there, John. I love it. Uh, Marie and Marty's Media Matters banter. Everything on RCR feels so honest, and as I choose a podcast format in the evening, it brings calm over me, assured that all of you guys are so honest with your presentations. You've all changed my life, and I'm so grateful to you all. Regards, John. Thanks, John. Uh, uh, Marty was thrilled to get that feedback. 
Marie, you're a jewel in the crown of RCR. I'm a big fan girl of both your shows and your wool sales. Thank you, Jackie from Nelson. Yes, I love both my show and my wool sales. That's my day job, people. Uh, so thanks so much for your feedback. Keep it coming, 2057, or inbox at realitycheck.radio. Welcome along to another week of counterculture here on RCR with Marie. A scorpion wants to cross a river but cannot swim, so it asks a frog to carry it across. The frog hesitates, afraid that the scorpion might sting it, but the scorpion promises not to, pointing out that it would drown if it killed the frog in the middle of the river. The frog considers this argument sensible and agrees to transport the scorpion. Midway across the river, the scorpion stings the frog anyway, dooming them both. The dying frog asks the scorpion why it stung, despite knowing the consequence, to which the scorpion replies, I'm sorry, but I couldn't resist the urge. It's my nature. We've all heard this fable, and it's one that's been on my mind with the upcoming elections now less than four months away. Why? Because this best describes the current political class in New Zealand. The current mob have been stinging the shit out of hardworking New Zealanders for five and a half years. And finally, as the country lies hurt, divided and dying, they still try to convince us to help them across the river. The situation many of us now find ourselves in is if not them, then who? Because despite all best intentions, every politician with a realistic chance of gaining passage across this electoral river are all scorpions. They may not sting us in this crossing, but as the fable says, I couldn't resist the urge. It's my nature. I'm still an undecided voter and I get the feeling that I will remain so until the day I enter that ballot box. What I'm going to have to reconcile is, is whether I follow my conviction and vote with my heart, or whether I accept the reality to see change, I may need to help a scorpion across the river and hope like hell it doesn't sting me on the way over. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way, because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together, and so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I, I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions but you know as I've said before there is no such thing as a wrong opinion opinions are like noses everybody's got one the exchange of views fair debate no cancelling no interrupting no aggressive responses we want to hear what people have to say whatever side you're on and the listener the consumer with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. You're with Counterculture on Reality Check Radio. I am Marie, and this morning I have the great pleasure to introduce author, speaker, and Kiwi abroad, Trevor Loud. And good morning, and welcome back to RCR. Oh, it's great to be on. Thanks so much for having me, Marie. 
Now, for those who don't know Trevor, he spoke to Rodney actually in our early days of RCR, so I strongly suggest that you go and check out that Real Talk with Rodney Hyde interview over on our replays at realitycheck.radio. Definitely worth checking out. Look, Trevor, are we living in the Cold War 2.0? Yeah, we are. We're we're the... uh... The sort of period of peace since the you know the collapse of the Soviet Union is is gone, and we need to acknowledge that, and we need to prepare accordingly. We're actually, in some ways, we're worse than the Cold War because um, at one time, you know, um, America was a lot a lot more a lot stronger than it is today. Um, China wasn't nearly as strong as it was today. And Russia still has the same amount of nukes it had back then. The whole world balance of power has sort of shifted. And so we're in a Cold War. It's been fought culturally, um, geopolitically, economically, digitally, and not so much hot right now, but that could change at any time. The entire current conflict in Europe, I just get the feeling it's not about what they say it's about. What are your thoughts on the whole Russia-Ukraine situation? Yeah, and and I'm probably at odds with many on this um, because there's a lot of uh, stuff out there. You know, you, you know, it really was Putin was acting defensively and that kind of thing. And I'm more of the view that Putin's role was to go into Ukraine, take it very quickly, and China would attack the Far East, uh, Iran would attack the Middle East, North Korea would attack South Korea, and there'd be a massive surge over the US southern border with terrorism, et cetera. That's what I think was going to happen. And I know that's not the conventional view by any means, but I think the fact that the Ukrainians proved a lot tougher than they expected has delayed the plans of Xi and others around the world. So that's not a conventional view, but that's that's my reading of the situation. Do you think Xi will go into Taiwan or will he look elsewhere? I think Xi is really talking about Taiwan, but I think his real target is America. And, um, you know, the west coast of America. Uh, look, look, coming across the southern border in recent weeks have been hundreds of military-age young Chinese men. And... Um, uh, I heard a story from a famous war correspondent the other day talking about how these men are coming up through the Darien Gap in Central America. That's the, the part of Central America where there are no roads and you have to go through the jungle. And at the end of this this little exercise, about 80 miles of jungle hopping, they kill chickens and drink the blood. Can you believe that? And that is the apparently the initiation ceremony of the tiger squads these are chinese pla special forces like new zealand's sas or or american navy seals so these are actual military operatives coming across and slipping across the border under cover of the of the mass refugee um influx and so what are they going to do are they going to um the minute China attacks America, are they going to start blowing up dams? Are they going to start assassinating people, poisoning reservoirs, mm. setting off, um, you know, bombs and supermarkets? What are they going to do? Mm. Because why else are these military-aged Chinese men 
with almost certainly um, special forces connections coming across the border in their hundreds right now. Well, that border has been leaking like a sieve since early 2021. Yeah. But it only just appears in recent weeks that media on the uh, left side of the fence are starting to report a little on this. I mean, I know that uh, more conservative outlets have been beating this drum incessantly that entire time. Why do you think now the media are starting just to wake up? Is it because they're starting to see some of the flow-on effects with homelessness and crime in some of these key areas? Because it doesn't seem to worry San Francisco and Chicago. I mean, they seem to be getting quite comfortable with their crime waves. Well, even Chicago's having a problem now, but it's certainly worrying New York. And um, it's certainly worrying New York a lot and many of the other cities in the north. You know, Texas has been coping with this for years tens of thousands of people in little towns, but New York gets a few thousand and it's a big panic, you know? So yeah, it is starting to worry them. I think they're also getting ready to get rid of Joe Biden uh, because they can't go into an election with Joe Biden. So if they can hang this on him, you know, he's not, he's not protected like he was. He's seen as a liability now. So they're not going to cover for him the same way. And he's got this big bribery scandal looming over his head right now, you know, allegedly taking $5 million from a foreign national. So that's going to come out. So they're not going to protect Joe. It's it's too overwhelming to ignore. And a lot of their own, um, their own Democrat cities are getting inundated right now. They're really suffering. So... Yeah, they might want to call a halt to this at least at least for a while to give mm. the Democrats a chance of winning the next election, and so I think they're they're going to make more of a feature of it. So then, primary season's coming up. So far, I mean, the Republicans. I mean, there seems to be people announcing nominations in the GOP left, right, and centre, yeah, yeah. which is you know it's like every week it's like oh there's a new nominee. The Democrats, all of whom not, are non-entities, pretty much. Yeah, yeah pretty much, but. Democrats, not so much. And I mean, let's face it, Biden's approval ratings aren't exactly stellar. I know that they will do everything in their power to prevent RFK Jr. from getting that nomination. He sees the corruption in the deep state. He's lived it. And I know he's got the FBI and the CIA in his sights. So is there anybody that you can see in the wings that's going to pop their head up for the nomination? I think what they'll try and do is parachute Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, into the spot because he, he he looks the part and he's part of the establishment. You know, he's got this sort of movie star, good looks. He's the governor of a big state. He can be controlled. You know, RFK um, can't be controlled. You know, so they, they they see him as a danger like Bernie Sanders. You know, that the they um. In some ways, his politics aligns with theirs. Some ways, it doesn't. But they see him as a danger, and they're not going to let him anywhere near the reins of power. But they can't go with Joe, and Kamala is terrible. So Gavin Newsom is the one that's most talked about over here. Is the one that they'll try and parachute in somehow. So I expect Joe Biden to a scandal to erupt. He gets impeached. He gets removed, um, and they just parachute Gavin Newsom as the candidate over over Biden. 
and really just sideline Kamala Harris. Mm. Give her a Supreme Court judgeship or something like that, you know. Yeah, well, she is deeply unlikable. Yeah, Newsom is interesting. I had uh, friends here from California in January, I live in Silicon Valley, live and work in, in, the, in the tech industry. So the blood is pretty blue in the veins. And they just had their local elections for sheriff and district attorney and all that such before they'd come back out to New Zealand, come out to New Zealand. Whilst we were on holiday together, they let slip. I said, oh, you know, how did that go? We actually voted for Republican candidates. And I looked Is that right? That'd be right. And I went, oh, how did that go? And both of them said, we looked at everybody and we made the decision to vote on merit and the ones that we felt deserved to be there on merit happened to be the Republican candidates. And they are struggling now with a lot of the, the cultural elements that are starting to creep in, like it's actually pierced their veil and they're finding that really difficult. So that sort of whole neo-Marxist style cultural element that's pervading everything including the politics what are you seeing like from a top level but moving all the way down through uh, particularly in those blue states yeah. how is it yeah and well that's right see when you're in, in silicon valley and you're rich and you're doing okay you don't really understand what's happening but when it's in your school board when you see what they're actually teaching your kids you know there's a lot of liberal moms out there who are very conservative when it comes to the education of their children. And they've sort of ignored it up till now, but now it's so bad in California, the transgender pushing, the sex, the corrupt sex education, all the PCism that just inundates California education and the absolute bottoming of the standards. Yeah, even those Silicon Valley people are getting pretty darn concerned about it. You know, they in San Francisco, they did a recall against Chase Boudin, the, the extreme left-wing district attorney, because, uh, you know, which would have been unheard of at one point, because the crime in San Francisco and the filth and degradation of the place, the one, once was the jewel of the crown, you know, the, the tourist mecca for the West Coast, uh, it's in their face now. And they can't avoid it. And it's affecting their incomes. Their shops are closing. They can't uh, park their cars on the street. they they got to be careful where they walk. Um, so, yeah, look, look I, I think there is a, a real situation that is ripe for change in California and many other of these blue states. You know, they're mm. either leaving or they're starting to look at voting conservative in those areas. I was in San Francisco in October 2019, and then I was back there again in February 2020. And I could not believe the deterioration in that short space of time. And I was told that it's gotten worse since. Yeah. Why do they keep re-electing these highly progressive mayors? Is it just because they are so conditioned to do so? Well, partly, you know, it's partly because they are conditioned and there's a lot of younger people, very liberal-minded Etc. But the Republican Party in that in California is extremely weak and has been extremely compromised for a long time. You know, the uh, Munger family has dominated for a long time. They're basically Democrats and they keep on purging, you know, good candidates and putting in liberal Republicans all the time. Their, their idea is you fight socialist Democrats with socialist Republicans. You know, this is how you're supposed to do it. 
and they won't fly the flag. And that is so, you know, Trump goes into those areas and he does very, very well. You know, people who follow his mold do very, very well. But the leadership of the California Republican Party has been shockingly weak in the last 15 years. And I talk to the grassroots all the time. I, I'm a lot in California. And the grassroots is very patriotic, very much like uh, Voices for Freedom type of people. They don't like vaccines. They don't like political correctness. They don't like being told what to do. But they've been handicapped for a long time by a very weak and very re liberal Republican Party leadership. And that is starting to change now because you're actually seeing Democrats cross. Democrats mm. are crossing over and they don't want to cross over they want to cross over entirely. They don't want to cross over to to, to Democrat light. They want mm. to change in direction. Yeah. Everywhere I go, every meeting I hold, every speech, I was a Democrat. I was a Democrat till two years ago. Not anymore. I was a communist up until last year. Not anymore. You know, they, mm -hmm. they are changing. Not that the leadership of the Republican Party is great in most states, but the grassroots is growing and it's becoming more dominant all over the country. Well, we saw that with the big rebellion, you know, where Lauren Bobbert and Marjorie Taylor Greene basically just about took down Kevin McCarthy and mm. extracted a whole lot of concessions. That wing of the GOP is growing and the old liberal, what they call a rhino wing, the Republicans in name only, is, is dying. You know, it's a race against time, really. Let's explore that little nugget, shall we? Because Tucker Carlson released his first episode on Twitter, and he took a swipe at the McCarthys and the McConnells and the GOP. Now, they've been on his radar for a while, but he really took a swipe at them. The Democrats are doing everything in their power to dismantle what is going on there. Now, I think there are elements in the GOP that are doing it quite healthily themselves, very much like the National Party and this country yeah there's a lot of analogies between the between the the sort of national party establishment and the republican party establishment like M mitch mcconnell should be in jail not leading the senate in the, in the gop you know his wife his wife's family has made billions of dollars carrying goods for the chinese communist party and the people's liberation army he has done everything he can to put money into sabotaging market candidates and electing liberal. He would rather lose a Senate seat than let a conservative have it. He is the, the biggest single danger in the GOP. McCarthy is cut from the same cloth, but the Republican grassroots has more leverage in the House. And so they could force him to do He's only got three or four seats majority, five, five seats majority. They can say, if you don't do this, Kevin, you don't cut this tax. If you don't do this, we are going to withdraw your support and you are no longer speaker. You know, they can do that. Whereas McConnell was more secure in his position. But I think the number one priority, if I was uh, as a grassroots Republican for me, is getting rid of Mitch McConnell. Mm. He, he, is, he, is, he is a traitor. Mm. That's not to put a too fine a point on it. The so-called red wave that they were hoping to achieve in the midterms just didn't happen. I mean, it was fairly underwhelming. They did get the numbers that they needed, but the Senate race didn't pan out there in their direction. How do you think that will hurt them coming into the general election? Will they be able to get enough momentum back up again to get whoever their nominee is over the line? 
I think it'd be very difficult. And I just want to draw a little point that nobody seems to discuss. The only place that had a real red wave was Florida. Mm. Because in Florida, under Governor DeSantis, there have been real, actual things done to dampen down on vote fraud. He's gone after vote fraud rings in um, Fort Lauderdale and Orlando. He's prosecuted people for vote fraud. He's banned banned um, ballot box, um, you know, drop boxes. He's done a whole bunch of things. Not enough, in my opinion, but more than anywhere else. So we got a red wave in Florida, but nobody else did because what happened? Florida went deeper red because they reduced the vote fraud. The red states pretty much stayed the same, and the purple states went bluer because they are dominated by the big Democrat cities like Detroit, Los Angeles, whatever, where the voting fraud is endemic, and they doubled down on it. So purple went bluer, blue went bluer, red stayed the same except for Florida, which did much better because they reduced the vote fraud. So many states all over, many of the red states have adopted similar measures to what DeSantis has done. So we are going to see a better reflection of the electorate this time around. I'm not saying nowhere near enough, in my opinion, not, not nearly enough, but there will be some progress made. So I think with the, given the complete unpopularity of the Democrats, given the right campaign and given and this depends on the primary as well and how brutal that is, given the right outcome there, I, I, I still think we have a fighting chance. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we've got a 50-50 chance, okay? I'd like to say we've got an 80-20 chance, but I think mm-hmm. 50-50 is more, more realistic. And that might be a little bit optimistic. Yeah, I know last year Patrick Basham came out and said that he didn't believe that DeSantis would throw his hat in a ring and he'd potentially heard that a deal had been done, but then DeSantis has put his nomination in. What do you think prompted that? I Personally, I think he's too uh, soon, look, but I, I like oh, yeah, it. Maybe, and you could say that's right. You know, he could have waited until after Trump. Look, he was always going to run. I, I, th- I don't know where Patrick got that from, but I live in Florida. I've got my, I sort of have an ear to the Republican Party here. I don't think there was any question that he was going to run. You're sure the Trump people have tried to deter him in that, but I, but I think he he's thrown his hat in the ring. And I would give him a 40% chance of getting the nomination, mm. I would say. Yeah. I think because uh, Trump's got a lot of legal problems coming up. Trump's also got a very big albatross around his neck and his, his ongoing support for vaccines. And DeSantis is... Uh, when the two go head to head, I think um, I would I'd give DeSantis a pretty high chance of prevailing. Actually, I think the one that I'm still the favourite, but I wouldn't write DeSantis off. By yeah, any means. the one thing I saw with DeSantis it was two things. One, I think the National Party here, Christopher Luxon, could learn a lot from DeSantis because he has shown courage and leadership, even yep. in the face of what is the current paradigm culturally and i mean he's not been afraid of who he takes on i mean the fact that he's taken disney on to the level that he has is massive to me he's going back to the principles of the american constitution is that something that a lot of grassroots republicans are 
a feeling like that they're wanting to see? They're wanting to see oh, the constitution look, look, restored? Yeah, look, 100%. See, look, I go to a lot of Republican meetings now, and as I say, the old guard who regard the, the Republican Party as basically a business opportunity, you know, as a, as a country club, as their little fiefdom, that is dying. You know, COVID really did us a favour in some ways because people sat at home for two years watching, reading their kids' school textbooks, watching their cities being burnt, watching their elections stolen, and they've finally woken up to the fact that we could lose this country. So what you're seeing is a massive growth, like you see in New Zealand with Voices for Freedom, you're seeing a massive growth of these grassroots groups, you know, Moms for Liberty, that you see them all over the place, plus a lot of younger people are joining the GOP and getting very active, the Republican Party and getting very active. And they're not joining for the country club, they're joining to save their kids. They're joining to mm. save their country. There's a whole different a attitude. And that feeds onto the Tea Party movement that came along 10 years ago. A lot of them are still in there. A lot of them have taken over Republican parties and in certain districts. And these new ones are coming in and they're fired up. This is not a business as usual party. And if Luxton would understand the mood is the same in New Zealand, and if David Seymour would understand that, um, they could do, they, they should be, National and Act should be comfortably on 65% between them right now. They should be. But they're not because Luxton is too much like a Jeb Bush, mm. you know, too much the old guard, too much of don't do anything too radical, don't really make a stand, just be a moderate, you know, just moderate yourself into the prime minister's job you know people have gone through a couple of years of hell with the covids with the economic wreckage political correctness the education corruption free waters all this kind of thing co-governance and i think my reading in new zealand is very similar to what the people in the united states the grassroots they're sick of it mm. they understand their way of life is under threat and they want leaders who will articulate that like Ron DeSantis does, like Trump does, and be very, very bold about saying so. You know, they're not, they don't want any more Mitt Romneys. They don't want any more wimpy leaders. Mm. They really do want grassroots leadership that is strong and uncompromising and will stand for people's rights. That's why DeSantis has done so well. Well, it's how Trump got elected in 2016. It's exactly how Trump got elected. You tell the truth, you appeal to the social issues, you are uncompromising, you stick it to the media, you stick it to your opposition, and you stand up for your people. Is this a difficult formula to work out? Yeah. <laughs> <It's> just... <laughs> One of the th things I've observed 
in here in New Zealand, and I have actually observed it with people because I do have a close connection to the United States, is there are a lot of people at the moment that are politically homeless. So traditionally, like both countries, if you were sort of the rural rednecks or uh, the rural conservatives, you, you tended to vote national or Republican. And then the blue collar urbans uh, unionised tend to go to Democratic or, or Labour. What we're certainly seeing in this country is a reversal, particularly of that blue collar urban voter and a lot of them are class-based the old class-based system they have been they're the stalwarts of the Labour Party's the stalwarts of the unions and all of a sudden their team isn't a team that they recognize anymore the people that are representing and speaking for them are the laptop lifestylers who you know the only thing they had yeah, to worry about yeah. in a COVID lockdown is whether or not someone could see that they were sitting in the audio onesie when they were on a zoom you know these sorts of people yeah. whereas those who are actually out there at the coal face are all of a sudden waking up when you're out and about are you seeing that are you seeing those traditional what were the base of the democratic party and probably the base of the labor party here now finally putting their hands up going i can't do this anymore Look, 100%. I'm actually not at home now. I'm in, up in Pennsylvania and I'm right in the Rust Belt. I'm near Allentown, you know, living I've been there, in yeah. Allentown. Yeah. Where they're closing all the factories down. I'm living very close to there. And this is Democrat union, mining, working class, factory territory. And the, the American flags and Trump staff is all over. I see that in Michigan too. I see that in Minnesota. The the guys who would have been union guys, patriots, but Democrat, traditional Democrats, they love Trump. They love the grassroots. They love make America great again. They want to bring manufacturing back to the country. They want to um, restore American values. They're not okay with their kids learning transgender stuff. Mm. They're not okay with their factories being closed down. They're not okay with this assault on their culture and making patriotism bad. This is the same thing when I was with uh, Voices for Freedom. There's a lot of ex-Labour people there, mm. you know, who would have once been pretty hardcore Labour, but they, they look at modern Labour under Jacinda. This is not Norman Kirk Labour, is it? I grew up in Kaipur. Norman Kirk was our mayor once, you know. Mm. The same phenomenon that you're talking about is very evident in America. Look, a lot of um, New York Democrats come down to Florida. The minute they get down here, they change their registration to Republican. Mm. We get the, you know, from New York, Massachusetts, New Jersey, they come down to Florida. And we were worried about that because we thought, oh, they're going to bring their vote patterns down. That's not what's happened. They're changing their vote because they come to free Florida for a reason. They're sick to death of the taxes and the political correctness and the vote fraud and the, and the, the corruption that they see up there. They want a free state. And, uh, you know, Labor, the New Zealand Labor Party is dominated by basically student Maoists now, mm. you know, hardcore radicals who learned their communism at university, went into the Labor Party, and now they're running things. The Prisipkins, the... Um, all, all these Grant people, Robertson. Yeah, they are. They're Grant really Robertson, Aisha Verrill. That's where they come from. That's their background. And then they come in with the Greens, who are basically just Marxists. This is openly Marxist now. And so, yeah, this is this is not the Labour Party of the past by any means. So they're looking for a new home. But they don't really like National too much. 
because that's a bit pluty and you know Chris Luckton that's not really what they want and that's why they're attracted to some of the smaller parties the more vibrant parties and in America you've only really got Republican and Democrat but they're not attracted to the old guy they're not coming over to vote for a Jeb Bush type or a Mitt Romney they're coming over to vote for Trumps and DeSantis's and and Carrie Lakes and people like that who are really willing to fly the flag, really stand up. So there's a real, a real political and cultural shift going on in America right now, mm. which if it's allowed to mature, is going to be great for the future. The trouble is, are we going to get to that point? And I think that's similar in New Zealand. I think sometimes you have to almost lose something before you appreciate it. And I think that's what million what millions of Americans and hundreds of thousands of New Zealanders have experienced in the last couple of years. Yeah. Finally seen that their freedom could go and not come back. And they're, they're worried about that, as they should be. Absolutely, they should be. And I, and also to this pervasion of this culture, this whole neo-Marxist critical theory-based culture is based in affluence. So when affluence mm. is prevalent, it's going to thrive. But the minute that the pedal hits the metal and people are struggling and they're hurting, I think that's when they're starting to sort of wake out of their stupor almost and wake up. When you're, when you're insulated, it doesn't think, but now you're seeing it with your kids. Mm. Now the COVID lockdowns affected you, you know, and it ruined your business or, or got you fired or whatever. This is serious, serious stuff. Hmm. This isn't just silliness anymore. This is actual serious stuff now. So me being a casual observer looking up at the US and particularly around this cultural landscape, I mean, the foundations have been there since the 50s. I mean, there were Russian defectors that warned about this all the way back then. Personally, I think that this had an opportunity to propagate under the eight years of Barack Obama. And he stood there and gaslit... Democrats six ways till Sunday and everyone just thought he was the best thing since sliced bread. But if you scratch below the surface, he was as dirty as a shithouse rat. What What are your thoughts on that? You expression I haven't heard for a while. But look, there was a great essay I saw the other day. What we see in America now is what what Obama did. This this Marxist infiltration has been going for 100 years, you know. It, it was in the in the education system in the 30s and the journalism colleges in the 50s. It was never, ever cleaned out. But under Obama, he put the activist base, because he was working with the Communist Party and Democratic Socialists of America, he put the activist base in charge of the government departments. He put them into the leadership of the IRS and the Justice Department and the... um basically in 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 the military even and all the health department the health educational welfare he filled it full of radicals i just found today the the head of the just of the energy department is a native american woman put in by obama who used to go and hang around with some of the urawera 17 people you know the ones who got arrested up into it so she is now the head of energy in the Department of Energy covering all the Native American lands in America. So that's what he did. He filled the bureaucracy with Marxists. And so now the Justice Department is weaponized against patriots. The IRS is weaponized. The EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, has been weaponized. 
they're all being weaponized. And that's exactly what Chris Hipkins and Jacinda Ardern are doing in New Zealand. They are filling the bureaucracies with their Maoist and Marxist friends, especially education, but also justice, Ministry of Social Development, all of them are now led by Marxists and radicals. And that has really started under Helen Clark, but it accelerated under Jacinda Ardern, and Chris Hipkins is just pushing, piling it on. And you just have to look at the disinformation project. I mean, one of their leads is, it's even in exactly. her bio. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah well, is. my wife has done a lot, of, a lot of research on that, and that is directly tied up to the US State Department, uh, the disinformation project. It is led by Marxists, mm. by actual real Marxists. Hannah, um, what's her name? And whatever. Kate Hannah, that's, Kate that's Hannah, what, Sanjana. Kate Hannah, Hattawa. Kate Hannah. Mm. She is a Marxist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, an open Marxist, and she is now having influence on what you and I, or anybody in New Zealand, gets to read or see on the internet. That's her goal to control that. Yeah, there are so many threats coming from so many levels. There was even prior to this government, you would have like the issue du jour, an issue would crop up, it would get debated out in the the public sphere, on the media, it would bounce around. If the public opinion swayed too negative, you would see government back down and then we'd all move on. Since this crew have been on board, I really noticed it in, it was about April of 21. And so we'd gotten through the first flush of all the COVID hoo-ha, it literally felt like the government were dropping policy bombshells every week. Big things. And so health is actually an area that my husband and I had a business in uh, for a very long time. And I remember one of the, it was Anzac weekend, and she they dropped the new... Uh, Health New Zealand, what is now Health New Zealand bombshell. And I said to my husband. You said it by Rob Campbell, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I I remember saying to my husband, because we're both in our 50s, and I'm thinking, I said to him, does this not feel awfully familiar to you? And he's like, yeah, yeah, it does. And, I mean, we looked at it, dug back into it, and I was like, oh, my gosh, they brought back Crown Health Enterprise. It's literally, I mean, they've literally regurgitated a policy from when we both started back in the day, you know, and, and it was, it's like, gosh, just a there different is name. just a different name. Yeah. The new thing. Well, they put the, old, they, they, they put the old Maoist Rob Campbell in charge of it. Yeah. The new thing cropping up now, of course, are these ESG schools with corporate equity or corporate equality, I think was the word that they use, not equity. I was surprised by that. Um, index. These index. Have you come across these? Well, yes, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I know I've spoken to people and they've said to me, why companies like Anheuser-Busch and they can see that this goes against their branding and stuff. And it's like, yeah, but it's not about that. <laughs> you know, it's about no, these, no. these ESG scores. Most biz- big businesses of that size have government contracts. And so to get a government contract, you need to be ESG compliant. That's how they do it. Um, like, for instance, they socialized all the student loans in America. And now to get a student loan, you can only go to universities who are ESG approved. That's how they control it. So you're a university, so you want lots of people coming to university. They're going to get student loans, but they can only do it if you adopt ESG. Um, 
you know, the social governance stuff, the political correctness, all the diversity and everything that goes with it. And same with these big companies. They have contracts. If they don't have contracts with the government, they have contracts with people like BlackRock. And BlackRock works for China. And China is enforcing this stuff. This is what we call the Chinese, the Maoists would call mass line. Now, back in the 60s, when Mao was, was going, they would have mass line. Now, everybody had to go out and kill 10 flies every day because too many flies. So every, the sparrows were eating the crops. So everybody had to go and kill a sparrow every day. Everybody had to. If you could walk, you had to kill a sparrow. Everybody had to conform. And if you didn't, you would be punished. Well, this is what we saw in COVID in New Zealand. We saw mass line enforcement. It was never going to be about vitamin D or ivermectin or herd immunity. It was a Chinese mass line. It's going to be lockdowns, COVIDs, and vaccines. That's a mass line. And what did they do to you if you didn't conform? You were punished. You were ostracized. You were fired. That was their enforcement mechanism. Well, ESG is the enforcement mechanism for business. This is how you get businesses to adopt socialist policies. You want to do business with the government? You want to do business with China? You want to do business with BlackRock? You want um, to get student loans coming into your enterprise? You have to adopt ESG. And it's just, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's the Chinese social credit system for business. You know, as you know, in China, everybody gets a social credit score. You start your life, you have a score going with you all your life. You go to a church, you get the black mark. You commit a crime, you get another black mark. You join the Communist Party, that's a positive mark. Um, if your father a father was caught for embezzlement, that's a bad, bad mark against you. And this determines what jobs you get, can you travel, um, what education you can undertake. So everything you do is scored from the from the first day, from the day you draw breath to the day you die. Well, that is the, the model for the world. ESG for business, social credit for individuals, and all of what we're seeing around the West, this political correctness, the ESG, the enforcement mechanisms, that Climate is all goals. to get us controlled, yeah. you know, basically compliant, from the day we're born to the day we die. This is this is a future of North Korea worldwide with American surveillance technology. That's that's the future that they have planned for us. Yeah. So in this country, think Rainbow Tick, think Public Interest Journalism Fund, think digital. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, health passports, exactly. Oh, such a cheery thing, such a cheery thing to look forward to, you. <laughs> What is, but you know, this is you know, you say the journalism public, so these all these big journalist things they're getting money from the government and they got to promote the Tariti of Waitangi as part of that. And they're not going to criticize the hand that feeds them, are they? No, people are seeing it now. Like, I, I've spoken to people that when they read a story and they see that public interest journalism fund logo at the bottom, they just think, oh. Which then brings us to, I mean, media trust in the New Zealand media is now down to 42%. Well, I'm surprised it's that high, to be honest. In America, it's something like 15%. Wow. You know, even most liberals don't trust the media over here. It's like the old Soviet media. 
everybody would read the paper and they'd read between the lines. Oh, yeah, they're saying this. Well, really, it's the opposite. Whatever the government's telling you, you know it's the opposite. We've harvested 4 million cabbages in Uzbekistan. Well, you know that there's a crop failure in Uzbekistan, you know. Mm. It, it's, it's, but this is the future. This is the Orwellian future we're heading to, you know. Good is bad, black is white, um, up is down, you know, lies are truth, truth are lies. That is the dystopian future that we're heading into, and we've got to stop that. Yeah. Well, before we head off, Dame Jacinda, thoughts? Dame Jacinda, well, you know, she is she is a little student radical, a little Marxist who did what she was told and carried out the policies for her masters in China and other places, and now she's been naturally rewarded for that. And she's, you know, the, the Christchurch, um, what are the big things she's involved Christchurch in? Call. Christchurch Call. Christchurch Call. Um, she'll get a job in the UN or something like Auntie Helen did some, you know, somewhere down the track. She is, she's a Judas and, but she, you know, Judas's get their 30 pieces of silver and this is her 30 pieces of silver. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you see that I, I have a media panel with a friend of mine and, and I said to him, I said, I, I said, this is a golden handshake. This is exactly what this is. Yeah. This is, you know, payment for services. You've rendered. done your job, Jacinta. You went through some tough times enforcing that COVID stuff and, you know, people push back, but you stayed the course. Mm. You didn't back down. You did what you were told. Well, we're going to make the rest of your life very comfortable for you. You know, that's how it works. You know, we are heading into a world where you've got to go along to get along. That's the kind of world they want to take us into. And and we need to talk, you know, about how we stop that. You know, we've got an election in New Zealand this year. It's very critical. The election's coming up in America, but it's more than elections. We're going to we need a whole cultural shift. We're going to wean ourselves off socialism before it destroys us. Yeah. I would love to get you back before the election if we can, and definitely before the Absolutely. primary season. Yeah, there are so many things that need to shift. Things are starting to shift in Europe. We're starting to see um, Georgia Maloney is starting to make some positive change yeah, in Italy. Absolutely, she's a great example. Yeah. And I did hear that there's some rumblings and fracas going on in Spain as well. So I think they call yeah, the snap election Sweden, there. Sweden. In Sweden, yeah. yeah. So yeah, so, there's 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 definitely some very good figures coming forward in Spain. Um, Sweden is uh, doing very well in certain areas. They're, they're starting to shake off their socialism there, and they're not. Uh, that's why Sweden had the lightest lockdowns in Europe because they have the least Chinese influence there. You'll notice that all the countries that had the worst lockdowns are the ones where the Chinese dominate. But another topic I know I want to get you back on is China's influence in the Pacific. But that's another day, Trevor. We could be here all day otherwise. Thank you so much. This has been Trevor Loudon here on Reality Check Radio. Don't disappear, though. Still more great music. Woke Word of the Week, Media Matters, all still to come. Here with Marie on Counterculture. You've heard the words open, fair, both sides of the story. It's easy to say them. But practising them often seems like a bridge too far. New Zealand, it's time for a reality check. Reality check. RCR. Reality check radio. Rational discussion. Common sense. And open debate for real. 
with me, Paul Brennan. You know, you just can't make this stuff up. You couldn't write the script. Veteran broadcaster Peter Williams. Where is the evidence they actually make a difference? It turns out that was a very fair question to ask. Taking on the mainstream, Chantel Baker. Mainstream media, as usual, in their little perch. The man who cares so much and whose background is for real, Rodney Hyde. The doctors don't believe them. They can't get ACC. They can't work. They're told it's all in their head. Along with a raft of contributors to inform, entertain and bring the truth back to New Zealand media. It's time for a reality check, all right. RCR, Reality Check Radio at www.realitycheck.radio. We've arrived. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. This is Counterculture on Reality Check Radio. I am Marie, and joining me now, star of TikTok and Twitter and Plain Sight, it's Auntie Hey Hey, Karina Shields. Welcome to Counterculture, Karina. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Marie. Oh, I'm delighted to have you. You've been on my list for such a long time, and it's so good to talk to you. We've been having a chat before we we started, it went live with us. But let's talk about first Albert Park, because I know that you were one of the first people Paul Brennan spoke to when we launched RCR. What's, how has it been since that day in March to now? Things have gotten a lot better for me. Um, in those initial couple of weeks, there was a lot of fear. I stayed home a lot. There was a lot of anxiousness every time I went out in public. But things have settled down. And what I've found is that my biggest supporters have been men. Yeah, it's been really interesting to see how many men have actually stood up and supported me since then. I am flooded with messages every day to make sure that I'm okay, to stay on track, look after myself. And I'm just like, wow, okay. It would have been nice if all of these men were there before. Yeah. But it's good to see that you're here now. And so they have just helped to amplify my voice so much more with their support. I mean, you have been doing this for a few years now. Talk us through some of the trolling and online bullying. I mean, how have you gotten through it? It's great to hear men's voices, but how has it sort of ebbed and flowed in that time for you? Things have gotten a lot better for me, especially since joining Twitter. Before that, TikTok is one of the most vile platforms to be on, right? You need to have nerves of steel to actually stay there because the attacks are so much more horrific than any other platform that I've been on. And so I have learned by just staying focused on what I need to, trying not to overreact. At the end of the the day, I'm still human, right? And so there are times where I bite back probably a bit harder than I should. But I've learned from doing that, a lot more people have become vocal. Like just in the last two weeks, I've gained another thousand followers on TikTok just from the conversations that we are having around politics and understanding different things. 
And so I'm just like, wow, the conversations are actually starting to flow now. Where they weren't before, it was just a lot more attacks. So let's backtrack for listeners that haven't heard you before, haven't heard Auntie Hey Hey. So how did it start? It started off back in 2020. I started addressing state housing issues for my parents. They had a lot of maintenance issues that weren't being addressed. And I said to mum, why are you not getting this done? Why are you not getting it sorted? She's like, they don't care. Nobody's listening. They don't do the job properly. And so I was like, right, make me your agent. Let me get on top of everything. It took two years to get to the end of that journey. In the end, I needed to get MP help. It was because of Brooke Van Belden that these issues actually started getting addressed. And even then, it took a year to get her attention. And so it kind of escalated from there where I was seeing that there were other people who were affected by these state housing issues as well, and they weren't being addressed. And what I was finding from conversations with people is that they were scared to say something because they thought if they lived in a state house, they were going to get kicked out for complaining if they were on a benefit that was going to get cut off if they were complaining. And so those fears for people were very real. And I was like, right, I don't live in a state house. I don't receive a benefit. I have a voice that can be used to help other people who feel like they don't have a voice. And so I ended up starting a Facebook page and I put lots of housing information on there. And then all the COVID stuff started and I started taking a lot of that on as well, talking about a lot of that um, because of my own concerns. And then everything has just snowballed from there, from state housing. We've talked about COVID and food issues and how to get food grants. And we are starting a great big conversation around corruption and money and things with John Tamahiri and Tifano Order. So I have managed to cover a lot of topics with people, but it was basically started off with mm. state housing. And isn't it interesting with state housing? Because as a landlord, which essentially the state is, okay for me, but not for thee. You know, yeah. if yeah, so other landlords have to abide by all these rules and then but the state themselves are the world's yeah. worst the worst. landlords. Yeah, mm. the worst landlord in the country. And they're the landlord with the most vulnerable tenants. The biggest landlord with the most vulnerable tenants under them. That lack of accountability from them isn't okay because our kids are the ones that are suffering by living in these houses with black mould and really, really cold houses for some of them. Yeah, yeah. Let's sort of talk about, because you did touch about that in terms of with the vulnerability, and one of the things that I've really picked up from you is in terms of your wisdom and pushback around the current narrative, particularly for Māori. One of the questions I have is, do you think Māori currently are having a bit of an identity crisis? Absolutely. We have got a lot of our younger Māori these days who are falling for current government narratives where they believe that all problems within Māori have only existed since Pākehā have arrived. But the reality is, is pre-colonial times, we were fighting each other for land, for food, for power. But it's something that isn't talked about because if we do talk about it, then it is deemed racist. 
because I'm part Māori and I'm from both I'm on both sides and I know that the two tribes that my family are from, it's Te Rawara and um, Ngāti Pro. So there's not a lot of good blood there <laughs> from back yeah. in the day. And, and when I used to hear those stories, for, particularly from my um, the Ngāti Pro stories because they obviously weren't very fond of their northern brethren coming down and uh, reaping havoc around the East Coast. So we would hear these stories when I was a kid and and it's almost like a, um, a re writing of history you know it's like you're not allowed to talk about these stories anymore in in certain company that's exactly what it feels like it's a rewriting of history and and it's ignorance to it and I think it's not helpful to anybody especially Māori if we aren't being absolutely real with ourselves and everyone else we actually need to look within our own and start that healing process from within how are you seeing it? I'm seeing the rise of almost this Māori oligarchy, you know, with this Māori elite. And they're all saying that they're doing this for the people, trying to speak with a single unified voice, that they they speak for all Māori. And yet most of them have been raised in fairly affluent households, university educated, very top jobs, haven't actually probably gotten their hands dirty a day in their lives. And they've essentially gone from high school to university activism straight into positions of power. How do you look at when you see that and you think, how could you get so out of touch with what's going on? Uh, you know, it's absolute bollocks what I am seeing at the moment from some of these more affluent people. And if they actually took the time to listen to their own, we know who is and isn't doing the work. And we know that it's those that are at the top, the likes of John Tamihiri and Calvin Davis, Willie Jackson, Rawiri. We know that those are the people who are making money off us. It has been a hard road to try and combat that. There have been a lot of conversations just yesterday that I've been having on TikTok around some of these issues, and people are actually getting a lot more vocal about things. You know, they're saying things like, to Haitia is not their king, especially if you are from the north. Mm. That's a lot of the comments that are coming through on my on my TikTok is, to Haitia is not our king. Well, there, there has always been an uneasy peace, though, from, from those tribes in the north to Tainui. Yeah. I mean, that, that is nothing new. Yeah, but it's not been acknowledged, mm. you know. It is, it is not being acknowledged, and the narrative is, is that everybody gets along and that we all speak the same language. And I'm like, no, see, I'm one that doesn't agree with compulsory trail because I look at it as, Whose bastardized Pakistanified version of Te Reo Māori are we are we speaking here? Are we trying to teach when different tribes have different dialects? Yeah, yeah. Oh gosh, there's so many places we could go with this, Karina. Honestly, so to, right. so talk <laughs> so talk me through. Been talking very much around the Māori role and encouraging people off the Māori role. What is your reasoning behind that? So. Basically, the Māori role, you don't even need to be Māori and you don't need to speak Māori to stand as a Māori seat candidate. And so for me, I look at who stands in these Māori seats and they tend to be left-leaning parties, the Greens, Labour and Party Māori. And for me, I'm like, that's not really a lot of options. If you don't need to be Māori and you don't need to speak Māori to stand in a Māori seat, then what is the point of 
me staying on the Māori role. And what I do know is that the Māori role and the census is how they determine the number of Māori seats there are in election cycles. And what I've noticed is that there is a great big push to try and get more Māori onto the Māori role, something that has only recently come into law, by the way, because our option wasn't meant to be until 2024, but laws changed to allow Māori to change at any time. Yes, that's the jumping on and jumping off as opposed to making the decision once every five years. Is that right? Yes, yeah, that's the one. So that was a, a law that just came into effect in March. And so there has been a great big push to try and get Māori on the Māori roll and doing the, the census. And I think um, a lot of that is to do with they are trying to increase the number of Māori seats. That's yeah. what it is, especially when bribes are starting to be offered. <laughs> it was certainly around the census, as I said to you before, I'm here in Hawke's Bay and a lot of money was spent. Uh, we, I think, had one of the lowest census returns in the country. Now, to be fair, cyclone, but I think people got to a point where they looked at, I don't think they saw the relevance in the census and a lot of the questions being asked in the census. I, I just kept thinking, what, are you, what information are you fishing for with this question? Yeah, yeah. And for me, I'm looking at Don Tamahida and Waipareta because they're local to me. They're offering things like Nike shoes and custom clothing with people's area codes on it. You know, that's all big money. Nikes aren't cheap. And they're offering these things to people to do the census, whereas the law says you have to do the census or you could get a fine. Why are we not pursuing the law? Why are we offering bribes instead? Mm, yeah, exactly. Have you seen just in the last few days the Rawari fighteries over in France? Yes. Having a grand old time by the look of it. Yes, I did see that. I got seen videos and I'm just like, yeah, okay. And for listeners that haven't seen it, I'm talking five-star hotels, premium meals. What are they even doing over there? Yeah, exactly. What are they doing over there? There's a lot of work here that needs to be done. You can see the Eiffel Tower from the room that they're sitting in or that staying in from the videos that I saw. Like, wow, lucky yeah. for some, right? Yeah, lucky for some. Certainly very lucky for some. So you're doing some work now, you said, in some investigations. I don't know whether you're able to talk about this more, but in regards to the back end of what's been going on with Te Pāti Māori and also John Tamahiri, because he seems to have a lot of fingers in a lot of pies. He does. He is Te Pāti Māori's president. He is the chief executive of Te Whānau Waipareira, um, Te Whānau Ora. Te Whānau Ora were actually the ones that went to court back in 2021 to get the details of unvaccinated Māori in the North Island. And so that's how I got involved with all of that, is because I'm not signed up to Waipareira Services but I started getting phone calls from them about being jabbed. I told them I wasn't going to do it until I had more evidence. And when they gave it to me, when it was out of trial phase, then I would reconsider it. And then didn't hear nothing from them for a long time until all of this bad weather started kicking off earlier in the year. And then I got a text from my operator doing a weather check-in with me. And I was like, but I'm not a client of yours. Well, at the end of that text was hashtag stay safe, hashtag get vaxxed. 
And so for me, that raised a lot of questions around, okay, I know Tifana Water went to court for the details of unvaccinated Māori. Are you now using my personal details to contact me outside of the scope in which you were given those details? And I would have thought that that was a breach of the um, Privacy Act. Yes. So I have done Privacy Act requests to see what information Tifana Order hold on me. They are over a week late in meeting their deadline, so I have gone back to the Privacy Commissioner to get more advice about how do I get this moving forward. But it is definitely something they have got me doing the runaround on. I just checked this morning because I was in the middle of writing an article today and I jumped on Facebook to have a look at Waipareda's Facebook page. I've been blocked from their Facebook page. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. I just get the feeling there's a lot of money changing hands to provide services and to be appear to be providing those services. Yeah. yeah. Back when John and Fano Water went to court for the details of unvaccinated Māori was around the same time that $120 million funding was made available for Māori vaccinations, the acceleration. And so $60 million of that was set aside for the vaccination program and $60 million was set aside for incentives. So there is definitely... $60 million yeah. was put and aside was for incentives. Yep, that was from a government press release that I read from October 2021. Oh, that's insane. Yeah. See, I'm from Gisborne originally, and I know up there that the amount of money that flooded into that area to increase vaccination rates was intense. And I know someone that works within the health sphere there, yeah. uh, within a government department, and they were working very hard to keep their unvaccinated status, but they were looking down the end of actually having to walk away from a 20-year career in order to do so. I said to her, how are they doing it? And she said, fear. Yeah. Fear. They have been playing on people's fears. People have fallen for it. The, The coercion that has gone on to get people to take this, and what I've found anyway is that that was just the beginning of the huge division that we are seeing in the country right now. It started then yeah, with this whole jabbing thing, and it has just gotten worse to where now if you don't agree, you're racist or you're transphobic. Conversations have been getting shut down for a long time. I'm glad you brought up the division because one of the things that I'm seeing, I'm part Māori, but I'm also part of a whole bunch of other things as well. So for me, the fact that I am part Māori is part of the fabric of who I am. It's not all of who I am. But with this new racial identification that the new ide- you know, the current ideology, they want you to almost pick out this one part of you, and that is the part that you identify as, instead of actually allowing you to be that individual that you choose to be you have to almost like no i have to be maori and in the recent days we've now seen information come out around health where doctors are so concerned because they're now being instructed that you need to push people through who are maori and pacifica on the list in terms of selection for surgery i mean i've been banging on at my parents my parents are of an age i've been banging on at them 
probably easily for the last four or five years. I keep saying to them, look, I know you don't want to do it, but you're getting frustrated. You need support. You need treatment. You need help. You're going to have to tick the mighty box. It's the only way you're going to get it. And, and there are a lot of people who are doing that same thing. A is, lot of people are starting to do that same thing. And I'm just like, well, do what you've got to do. This is what they wanted. They wanted more Māori, so now they've got it. Now what are they going to do with the new problem that they've created for themselves? And that division too, because to me all this does is create more division. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I think that is the intention. I think they're intentionally trying to keep us divided because if we do actually get together and sit down around the table and have some honest conversations, we might actually start solving problems. For me, there is money to be made in poverty. You look at over the last five or six years since Labour have been in, they've spent over a billion dollars on emergency housing. A billion, with a B. A billion dollars to keep people housed in motels and inadequate buildings yeah it's just so wrong and what are, in terms of outcomes what are you seeing any of the outcomes on the street and from people that you're speaking to not positive ones at the moment I have seen not far from me they did knock down a whole bunch of houses and people got moved out of them I have seen that they have started building houses and people are moving back into them again but whether that is a kind of order development or whether that has gone to private, I couldn't say. There are still a lot of people near me because there is a church a few minutes up the road and they are constantly doing community meals for people. So I can't say that anything that the government has done or is doing is actually helping people right now. I am seeing a lot more people who are worse off. I am seeing working families ending up in motels because they can't find a house to live in. So, Lisa, I mean, let's talk about some of those families that are really on that breadline. One of the things that I found with, in terms of the ideology and just all the bullshit that goes along with it, I find that those people that are on that breadline, that they don't have time for all that rubbish. How did they view the kitty tapus and the mecha factories and the rawiris and what are they seeing? Are they seeing people that are there representing and helping them or are they seeing people that are not helping them whatsoever? No, they are seeing sellouts. There has been a lot of talk about these people not helping their own. There has been a lot of now a lot more pushback against the likes of rawiri. Te Pāti Māori and John Tamahere Rāwari and Debbie, those three seem to be the ones that people talk about the most and have a lot of distrust for. Out of everybody in Parliament, it seems to be that lot there because they are so demanding. They don't know how to collaborate and they spend more time talking about hats and ties than helping their own people get food on the table and, and into houses. And people have noticed this. They don't have very good feelings about a lot of Māori representation mm. at the moment. Before we got started, we were talking about schooling. We had to wait to get started uh, because to try and prevent as much noise as possible with kids coming and going. The strike days, 
I mean, that is stressful for any family in any household. But if you're someone who, where your housing is uncertain or school is often the one place that the kids have an ability to see a pathway out, but now that is so drastically under threat, what sort of pressures and anxieties are you seeing with the children? Within my own, I am seeing severe mental health issues. I know of another boy that one of mine goes to school with, his parents want to pull him out of school as well, but they don't have any other option of what they can actually do with him during the day because people have bills and things. And so there are a lot of people who are stressed about what is in the curriculum, what is being taught to our kids. They are stressed out about having schools, having a go at them for the low attendance, yet schools seem to be able to have days off when it whenever it suits them you know these constant strikes I think teachers are finding that they're going to have less and less support as these strikes continue to go on yeah the frustration factor for my boys is certainly starting to peak because they are worrying about getting time in to be able to get credits on the table and also, the, the one thing school provides for so many of these families is an organised structure for a day, you know, that they've got something that they get up for, they go out, they, they get to school, they have, hopefully, it gives them an opportunity to strive, they can uh, express themselves. But if you take all of that away, and some of these, you know, family structures aren't healthy, so to actually having these kids have more time in the home is not necessarily healthy as well. It is... Wow. Yeah, it's quite concerning. I'm just just cycle back to some of the posy stuff, and particularly with women. Have you seen uh, John Hopkins? The, the, John, it's always when it, any of the stuff goes down, it's always John Hopkins. Uh, it came out with their new glossary, and it looks like women have been erased from the glossary. Have you heard about this? I haven't yet. I, I have heard about it, but I haven't actually read the glossary itself. Yep. The glossary is, um, this is really, I'm going to read it to you because I think you're going to find it quite interesting. But So they've gone and created a new glossary. In the glossary, under gay man, it is a gay man, a man who is emotionally, romantically, sexually, and affectionately, or relationally attached to another man, or other men, rather. So that is the definition of a gay man. Lesbian, on the other hand, is a non-man attracted to non-men. So we're non-men now. We're, well, according to them, there's been yeah. such a furore that they have actually now taken the glossary down. Are you seeing an attempt to try and erase women? See, now that glossary there reminds me of the Ahiwihungi glossary that came out and that whole thing of his that was taken down. And I'm like, this glossary of made-up words that they are trying to put in as Māori culture, those aren't words that we had. And so, yeah, I think that they are trying to erase our women and they are using Indigenous cultures to try and do that. I'm just looking up, and I'm glad you brought that up in terms of the language, because I know I had this conversation with Dylandi around the, the evolution of language. And so they talk about it's important that languages evolve. But one of the things that I'm certainly seeing with the with the Māori language is that it seems to be there's, there's a new word that's made up all the time. Um, I'm, just, I'm just trying to find it. There we go. 
Puhu Kereru, did you see that one for uh, Pride Week for the schools? Yes. Well, it's just like, and I couldn't, and I didn't get it to begin with. I saw it, and I'm like, what's a big fat pigeon got to do with Pride? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a change of language and a raising of history, and I'm just like, really? No, we need to stop. We need to actually just get real. And what I'm finding is it's a lot of the young ones who have been enabled by the government to do this kind of stuff. You know, the government are driving these narratives and putting ideas in their head, and it's just like, no, at some point the adults actually need to stand up and tell the kids to sit down and actually listen before they engage their mouths. Yeah, it's time for the adults to enter the conversation. Yeah, that's so, so true. So what are you seeing now? You wrote a really fantastic piece just recently and you were talking about the silent majority and it was a really wonderful, thankful, optimistic piece. Talk me through that. That was on plain sight because I really did enjoy that and I think our listeners will enjoy it too. That actually came out a lot more personal than I had intended it to be and it ended up being... A thank you but what I have found is that it was a thank you that needed to be done at that time and so today I have just finished doing a follow-up to that piece where it talks about the things that I have noticed and how I've noticed that people are getting a lot louder they're becoming a lot more vocal they're saying things that are opposite the mainstream narrative I was talking about in the article about how I have seen so many Māoris succumb to the government narratives over the last three years and I couldn't understand it because as a people we've always had a huge distrust of governments. But now that things are starting to come out into the open, I'm seeing that level of distrust return. Mm. And so my TikTok at the moment is just constantly blowing up. I cannot keep up with the notifications, the conversations that are being had, despite there being a few trolls amongst the comments, for the most part, people are actually having these real conversations that I've been trying to get them to have for a long time. It has been an absolutely amazing journey just to see so many people who have been so afraid to say things now start to open up and and talk about wanting to post on their own pages and start being more vocal themselves about things that they have experienced. Why are they fearful? Are they fearful because of the trolling and cancellation or are they fearful that they will have funding or more detrimental effects happen to them? Like there's that threat of losing financial support. For some, it is fear of losing their jobs. I've had that told to me a few times. For others, it is the fear of backlash and trolls just having to go at them. Some are fearful of doxing. So there are a range of different reasons why people have been too scared to say things. Some just feel like they don't know how to say what they mean. Mm. And so they just say nothing and they just click like because it's it's easier for them. Yeah, hapu. I mean, as you know, everything comes back to hapu, comes back to that that group. Let's protect the hapu, but every hapu is different. So how one does it is not the same to how another does it. That can be different in a single tribe or around a single marae. can be different from one region to another. But there's always that protection, you know, family first. And now it's um, there is this. It's almost like a, a virus of victimhood 
that has crept in. And a lot of that has come from outside. So it's not from people that have that connection with whānau. Are you finding that? Is, is that an observation you've had? That is an observation that I've had. I, I look at a lot of people and I'm just like, how did we get to this? Like, this, this isn't who we are and, and what is going on here? And I keep going back to, okay, there's either a lot of fear or there is a lot of money that is changing hands around everything that is happening in this country right now. I'm just bewildered by some people absolutely bewildered by what I am seeing. Mm. So if people want to hear and see more from you, where are the places, if they've, they've not heard of Auntie Hey Hey before, this is the first time they're hearing of the work and the things that you've got to say, what are the places that they can find you? Twitter and TikTok are my two main ones, and they are the ones that you are most likely going to get a response from. So on Twitter, it is Auntie Hey Hey. And on TikTok, it is anti-hey-hey 3.0. And that is because the level of censorship on TikTok means I have gone through a few accounts now. <laughs> wow. That's insane. Yeah. Yeah. And also to the plain, in plain sight, you've been writing and quite regularly. Yeah. So I do have my sub stack and I do have plain sight, but for the most part, plain sight, does publish all of my substacks. Dane is a really cool guy and he has been really helpful in helping to amplify my voice and get things out there. Awesome. Yeah, yes, I know I'm working on Dane at the moment because I want to talk to him here. So if you're talking to him, you tell him that I said I need him. I, he's I got, will. We had a chat uh, a couple of weeks ago and we were on the phone for about 45 minutes and I said, Dane, if you'd just let me press record, we could have had this all done and dusted. <laughs> He's a fascinating we, yeah. man. Yeah. We had that same conversation. He rang me one day and we had this full on conversation because he wanted to interview me. And he's like, you know, we could have just hit record and it would have all been done. I get what you mean. He is a very talented man and one whose brain you need to pick. He's uh, one of the founders of Plain Sight. So you can, I think it's just plainsight.co.nz. And as you said, Auntie Hey Hey on Twitter and Auntie Hey Hey 3.0 on TikTok. Thank you so much, Karina. It has been such a joy to speak with you. Don't go away. We've still got plenty to come here on a Reality Check Radio. Woke Word of the Week is yet to come. Uh, Marty will be here up next with Media Matters. Don't disappear. And if you've got any feedback whatsoever, that text number is 2057. Welcome back to Counterculture here with Marie and, as always at this time, Media Matters with Marty Gibson. How are you, Marty? I'm good, thanks. How are you? The poor old listeners are going to have even more heavy breathing this week because um, I'm <laughs> Snuffleupagusky. Snuffleupagusky oh. has a cold, so I'm sorry about what you've had for the last two hours, everybody, but that's why. Snuffleupagusky. But it's all good. Otherwise, I am good. In the papers... The papers this week, I uh, spent a bit of time going through everything again as a fresh look. The first thing I have to say, crikey, the uh, Sunday Star Times was exceptionally chewy this week. Very high fibre reading, wasn't it? <sighs> there was not a lot there, not a lot there. But I have pulled together sort of a few themes, and we've had a bit of a, a cordial before we got started, and it has been a big week in politics. 
Lots of posturing that has gone on. Uh, we've had events like field days that has sort of concentrated a lot of political attention into one place in the Waikato. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's been the fallout from the funeral in Tangi in Aporiki and Rawari's living it up in France right now. So is he? he is eating macarons and ooh la la, looking at the Eiffel Tower from a five-star hotel. Ah, what a nice way for a Māori to live. Where do you want to start? Well, I mean, you know, let's get the gangs out, out of the way. Let's crack down on the gangs. Let's um, crack down on the gangs, all right. It is just like clockwork, isn't it? Um, and I've said before, all these people have ever had their whole life is people cracking down on them, which doesn't mean that they shouldn't be pulled into line for their array of scumbag behaviours. And I think people get upset about seeing people do burnouts and uh, close roads. I mean, there's a lot of scumbag behaviour that people who aren't around gangs have got no idea about. It's a roast busters every week, if not you know, several times a week in most cities, in most gangs. And I, I've had a mob leader say to me, you know, they get the prospects to bring their girlfriends over, put a bit of pee in their drink, and then the next minute she's being sexually assaulted by a whole lot of these gang members. And so, yeah, there's a lot of ugliness around it, and I've seen it firsthand, and it's, it's terribly sad. You know, I found having kids really changed me a lot in the way I saw people and that I see everyone as a child. And I, I it's not an excuse, it's an explanation, but I, I do see gang members and their posturing and their sort of mental age of 14. And I think, oh, you just didn't get what you deserved when you were a kid. And, and you know, it's, it's interesting to talk to them always, because as I said, you know, you have that moment where you say, this must suck, does it? Because it's mm. never a peaceful, never a peaceful vibe in a gang pad. And also it's about breaking the cycle because you look at a place like a Portiki, which is a small town. I mean, it's 5,000 odd people. Because mm. the Portiki, I remember is the Portiki of the 70s and 80s when, you know, I lived the other side of the Waiweka Gorge. So it was mm. somewhere that we went to a lot and it was a mixture between a local Māori community and a farming community. And it's a gorgeous place. <laughs> it's a, I mean, mm. geographically, it's stunning. It was it was really wonderful. Now it's, it's, a, it's a town riven by gang conflict. Well, and, and methamphetamine, you know, meth, meth has just ripped through the coast. You know, there's this sort of bullshit like oh you know people are working two shifts at the kiwi fruit so they need to take the pee it's like yeah they need to do two shifts because they're addicted to pee yeah to that end how do you break the cycle you know you've got a school that closes for a week citing heightened emotions and that probably is one of the few institutions in that town that provides kids foundation structure and a way out well, and it's closed. Potentially. Potentially. Uh, 45% who emerge functionally literate. So I pulled out the editorial in the Herald on Sunday. They were talking about this. And this is what struck me in this, this piece. At the heart of this is a man that's been killed. Yes, he was a patched head of a loathed group. One doesn't become a mob boss by being a saint. But Pufakamua's rehabilitation program founder, Billy McFarlane Sr., says Taiatini should be acknowledged for the good stuff he's done. He's worked seriously hard to help make changes in the methamphetamine harm space. He and his partner, Pauline, have done a lot of work either in Rotorua. Are you getting a sense of chicken and egg here? Mm. 
Yeah, it's, it's like the uh, British sailor who uh, didn't tie a cannon down properly and then it raced around the deck, smashing things up, and so they gave him a medal and then hung him. Goes on to the further to say, McFarlane says um, Taitini's death was a tragedy and he was going to be missed. He wasn't a bad guy. He was quite a pleasant fellow to talk to and he wanted to do good. Yeah, well, I mean, I've been to a mob funeral and the, the mob boss was a personal friend of mine. I remember having a conversation with him and he said to me once, I'll say, Ike Murungurangi, you know, he's uh, head of the mob and and Gisborne, and he was, you know, son of a nice family by all accounts. You know, his parents were Seventh-day Adventists. I think he had the usual trip into the gang world that a lot of them do, which was in the Borstal system, the boot camp system, sort of back then. And, you know, that was sort of stuck on him, and he found out that he was really, really good at being really, really violent. But, again, he was he was a nice guy in the same way that you hear people like Hone Heke described as a nice guy. And there were almost, you know, always two speeds to them. There was a really humble, quiet gentleman that was just totally at odds with the volcanic violence mm. they capable of and in uh, those sort of situations. My experience with gangs is similar to my experience with Islamists, uh, overwhelmingly positive with one or two moments each of terror. I don't think either is a particularly good idea. And, and with gangs too, particularly when you're looking at the number of Māori in gangs, I mean, what are they now? More gang members in this country than there are sworn police. There's a number well, for you. It gives them somewhere to an outlet for that warrior side of their culture because that's been suppressed everywhere else. And, you know, if you if you ever ask Dyke who they hated most in the mob, their answer is other Māori gangs. And, you know, I mean, when I went to his funeral, there was me and another couple of white guys. Yeah, I'm not going to lie, it's terrifying. Yeah, there's a fair bit of barking. I like a good bit of woofing at the, on such occasions. But no one hassled me particularly at all. I was, you know, sad that he'd he'd died because I liked him. But you know, like I like a few other gang members. But mm. I, I feel sad at the people they hurt and that you know what they might have done with the the uh, manifest skills they had. It seemed such a waste, and I still think it is an awful waste. But again, when I hear Christopher Luxon cracking down on gangs, I've been in a gang house. I remember I was in one, there was a, a boy running around who couldn't have been much more than two or three. It was probably more like two. And his mum was out on a pee bender. I talked to him a little bit and played with him a little bit. And when I left, he, he came to the door and cried. And I uh, just was heartbroken about that. Just that thing of people's lives being screwed before they really start. And often in utero. We don't, mm. probably don't talk about that enough. You know, no. a lot of these people whose brains, you know, don't have very good impulse control, have been marinated in a co toxic cocktail of drugs and alcohol. And I remember doing a, a project about that for a Māori health organisation and New Zealand's leading paediatrician, she described it as New Zealand's foremost social justice issue. When you think about all the time we spend talking about various pride things, you, you can't really think too much about that ever being mentioned, can you? Absolutely not. And it all comes back to how do you break that cycle? How do you make a gang, if you're that child growing up in that house, how do you make the gang less attractive? If I were the National Party 
and that's a big if. Think rather than sort of talking specifically about cracking down on gangs, I'd be talking about cracking down on anyone who intimidates someone who tries to lead a, leave a gang. I think that's really important. You've got to take that valve out of there. Because once you're in, getting out's a pretty horrible prospect. And these people are still living all around you. And I'd also be really, really cracking down to the point of making it impossible for gangs to prospect young people into that life. Because mm. they do the dirty work before they can be criminally held liable. And that's just it. Every single person that is wearing a patch has actually had to do something criminal in order to earn it. Yeah. The National have come out, though, on how they're going to crack down on gangs. Yeah. Yeah, and these are the bullet points that they came up with, and I'm going to bring these up. Now, this is not to say that I'm pro-gang, and I'm going to preface this, actually. All these things that I talk about, I always look at it in what I call a barn door situation. What happens if the barn door were to swing back the other way? Because once these powers are enshrined or any powers or legislation are enshrined, it's very difficult to unravel them. Governments aren't fond of unraveling things. It takes too much work. They don't like doing it. Well, the, other, the flip side of that is they actually quite like the power to have um, searches of people's houses without warrants as well. Exactly. That one slipped through under urgency during lockdown one in March, March, April 2020. So, yeah, exactly. But National's solution to this, tits for hands, <laughs> banning gang patches in public places. We've heard this before, Michael Laws. I mean, without even diving into the free speech issues on that. Well, yeah, no, uh, because what, what defines... And this is where you need to look at what defines what will be a gang patch or perceived as a gang patch by legislation. Allowing police to issue dispersal notices where gang members come together in public to intimidate, threaten and sometimes assault members of the public. Again, if you looked at what constitutes gang members, all those other things, you don't want intimidation, threats or assaulting of members of the public. But this is like a precognition thing, right? So they're sort of saying, well, if they're a gang member, we can break it up before something happens. You know it when you see it. Yes, you know okay. it when you see it. But what defines what defines a gang? Giving police non-association powers to prevent gang members from communicating and planning criminal activity. Yeah, that's pretty woolly. Giving police the warrantless search powers they need to take the guns out of the hands of violent armed gang members, which has contributed to the worst gun violence seen in New Zealand. Well, actually, I think that already exists. So yeah. you're not giving them anything they don't already have. H having it and executing it are two quite different things, not saying that it should happen. I mean, I'd love to hear Cam's opinion. I can, I'm sure Cam will have something to say on that if we were to ask him. Cracking down on serious youth offenders by creating young offender military academies. That is National's five-point plan. Now, my concern with, with these is that all of these could be used against any group perceived to be against the incumbent government at the time. Mm. That is my concern. Yeah. I mean, you know, the cracking down too. I mean, I've talked to police who, who had really, really good results from going to houses where they're frequently getting called to domestic incidents uh, when 
they weren't getting called there for a domestic incident. When they go and say, look, you know, how's it all going? And the, the cracking down, as I said, it's 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 all that's ever happened. And there was the uh, commission into the um, treatment of children in state care. I think it's high time that the government, whichever government, all parties have been party to it, really acknowledge the harms that were done there. And I think any dehumanising of people demeans all of us. I've never gone into gang situations thinking it was glamorous, wanting to be associated in any way with the organisations. I just happen to know individuals because I had friends whose family were in gangs. And I used to write the odd letter to get people's pit bulls out of a pound (laughs) and write the odd story to counter a story that had been in the media about someone. You know, and that, that was revealing talking to those people. I remember one of them was about a kid kid in a gang situation and his father wanted to put the uh, other side of the story. He was talking about going seeing his kid in this basically youth detainment facility, whatever you call it. And he said, oh, I went in there and there's this uh, there's this uh, thing on the wall and it's got all these jobs and these names and these ticks and stuff. And I said, oh, well, what's that thing? And they said, oh, you know, that that's uh, we put that so, uh, you know, the kids know which jobs they've got to do today. And I said, oh, fire, Mum, we should get one of those. We just yell at them. You know, so there's a level of dysfunction. Basic parenting skills, essentially. Yeah, that's absolutely lacking. There was another incident I, I had when I was 20, and I, I was boarding in this place, very dodgy in Rotorua, and um, I thought something was going to go down, and there was a guy there who had been a black power prospect who just got out of jail and I said to him mate I think this is going to go quite bad quite soon so you know if I were you I'd pack my bags and you can stick them in my car if you like and uh, we can bounce eh? you know without messing around too much and uh, so it did go down and there was a bit of a few knives out and things like that so we off we set his plan was to go to the pub which was the Cobb and Co which was a I didn't realize it then but it was a pretty heavy black power haunt he had to get some money out and so he went across the road and for some reason he came back to tell me this I don't know why he came back rather than just executing his plan but uh, he said effing cards I'm going to go back and tell those effing C's and I said well if you do that they're going to say oh we're sorry and then you know uh, you know, after about five minutes, some cops are going to work walk in, and you're going to think to yourself, "What are they doing here?" And they'll be there to arrest you and take you back to jail. Here's what you do: go back and say, "Look, I wonder if you could help me. My money card's not working. You know, could you look into it for me? <laughs> go get him, champ." And he came back, and it looked like he'd just been slapped. I said to him, "Do you get your money?" And he said, "Yeah." It was really think it something clicked from there but yeah we went to the pub and yeah, that was a whole other thing it is again how do you break that cycle and there is and i don't believe national have addressed any of those issues yeah well i mean maori don't do well when they think people don't like them and i think that's a big problem that they see a lot of these guys like christopher luxon and there's this kind of visceral dislike where it'd be much better if they're like man you know any decent gangster wants their kids to go straight. You don't want what you had for your kids. And you're not really enjoying this. And it's a tit-for-tat thing, you know. You know, we're going to be tough, but 
we're going to make sure that you've got a path out of this that's going to leave you in five years thinking, man, what the hell was I thinking? And also doing some good rather than just constantly going around doing harm. So, so that's the plan Nationals come out. Of course, he, he's he been sort of lambasted partially around the comments that he made, saying that we've become very negative, wet, whiny, inward-looking country and we've lost the plot. When I heard that, I thought, actually, that is an unguarded comment that I believe probably a lot of New Zealanders are feeling. And it's been really interesting to see the commentators' reaction to that comment. But it was Shane Tapoe. Your buddy Shane Tapoe. Shane Tapoe. Shane, we'll have to we'll have Wow. To. I you know, he is somebody that gosh, honestly, I swear I get whiplash with a shape because there are times that he states things quite plain about seeing the positives and the negatives in terms of a position, particularly from a Maori point of view. Mm. And then we have this weekend's column, which essentially to me read like a job interview. <laughs> yeah, yeah I mean, I, as you know, I don't know why I do it, but I give him the benefit of the doubt, you know, like, but yeah, this one, he just believes everything. <laughs> it, everything's great. These guys are doing a great job. I, I love didn't this. actually highlight anything from it. Um, oh, I did. Did you? Oh, I see a country that's embracing our diverse cultures, that's delivering full employment and strong wage growth, a country that's building more homes than ever and welcoming people from all over the world to help us build a better tomorrow. Everything is awesome. I see an Aotearoa where we're showing that we can cut emissions without closing down industry. Oh, I haven't been to Taranaki lately then, Shane. I see a country that's been an inspiration to the world in how we have dealt with COVID and shown that looking after each other is the best path for both people and the economy. I see a country with 4,000 more nurses, 1,800 more cops, and where an experienced teacher can now earn more than $1,000 a year. I see an Aotearoa we where we have lifted 77,000 children out of poverty in five years and we can end poverty for all if we choose it. Yeah, I, mean, I haven't that, seen you know, so much gaslighting on a page since Ginny Anderson last week. Yeah, they must be going to the same school. I mean, you know, there's that assumption always too, isn't there, that the problem is that the people who um, are in poverty are just suffering from a lack of money. You know, sort of saying, you know, a couple of a couple with five million in assets over and above any debt would pay just twenty five thousand dollars a year more, and that money would lift several kids out of poverty, helping to make sure they have enough kai to eat and a good place to live. Well, uh, you know, Shane, let's go and see some state houses that would be good places to live. It's not the poverty in the bank account; it's the poverty between the ears. Unless we can admit that and admit that the teachers' unions that are funding labour are a big part of the problem, where uh, we could throw all the money uh, that we want at it and the only people who are going to get rich is the mob from selling drugs. I've just had Karina Shields on just prior to this, and she started, so she's Auntie Hey Hey on TikTok and Twitter. Mm-hmm. And I asked her how she started, and she said the whole thing started for her when she was advocating for her parents, who were state house tenants, and the the state that the house that they were living in was in, and the lack of traction that they were getting about doing anything about it. And she is very frank about Mm. 
the quality of what's out there. I just cannot believe I haven't seen so much fantasy. I'd love to know the fantasy land Shane lives in. That's what he sees this country is. Yeah. If you talk to someone like Karina Shields, I can tell you right now, she's talking to Māori every day. She's Māori. That's not the country they see. Yeah, well, there's a, there's a funny thing happens um, when Māori get educated and rich. I think they're really worried that they're going to get cast out. You know, I remember hearing Marama Davidson saying her grandkids called fruit and veggies grandma food, you know, and it should be everyone should be able to afford food. It's like, lady, you can afford to buy your kids fruit so your grandkids can eat fruit. Don't Don't give us that. There's that kind of need to to really say, yeah, yeah, everything's, um, your problems are all because the system hates you and wants to see you fail. It'll be interesting this coming election. So what are we now? 15 weeks in the monologue I talked about, I re-looked at the entire fable of the scorpion and the frog because that's just it. I'm still undecided. Still an undecided voter over here. Reading just all the shenanigans that have happened in the last several weeks is that the reality of it is, and even what's happened in minor party politics over the last few days, they're all scorpions. Mm. And it doesn't matter, even if you vote based on conviction, they're all scorpions. So the difficulty will be is which scorpion do you choose that is going to at least deliver you something that is going to look like effective positive change and not sting and kill you as you're carrying them across the river during the election. Yeah, I mean, he's talking particularly, I guess, about the Democracy NZ uh, meltdown. I know so many people out there, particularly who are conviction freedom voters, are really feeling like that they have potential to have their voice heard this election. I don't know about you, I can't see it. Too many parties, too much fractionation. And a corrupt media that's complicit in all of it. And it worries me deeply. It really worries me to the absolutely to my bones that I believe that there will be at least 15% of New Zealanders, at least, that will have their voices unheard this coming election. Oh, because of the splitting of the vote? Because of the splitting of the vote. You hate splitting of the vote, don't you? I, I do hate splitting Sit of the vote. Sit upright in bed. <laughs> well, I do. I do. You know, I mean, I, I just see Northland is going to be an absolute festering ruin. I think Matt has now, what's happened in Democracy NZ, and I'm not going to rehash it here for listeners. If you want to hear more about this, uh, listen to Paul Brennan's show on Monday. Uh, he covered off uh, some stuff there, and I know that he's been he's staying on the story, and I'm sure that you guys will probably touch it on the political panel in a couple of days. I know Cam was talking about it with Paul on Monday. Uh, Matt was on with Paul on Monday. Matt was probably the most cohesive of that group. And now you've got this implosion there. He was putting all his eggs in the Northland basket. Willow Jean Prime, unless some sort of cup of tea deal gets done in Northland, Willow Jean Prime is going to bolt in up there. I can tell you that right now, dollars to donuts. Because you've got Mark Cameron standing for ACT. Well, he's one of their strongest candidates, very, very strong within the rural sector. And from what I hear, uh, David Seymour was more greatly received at field days than Christopher Luxon was. So, you know, that rural vote is coalescing now around the ACT Party more than the National Party. It makes it uh, hard to believe so many uh, rural Canterbury voters swung Labour. I still really, 
struggle with that. And I still really hear that slimy little Democrat operative. Yeah, he, he described New Zealand as ripe for a juicy hack just prior to that election. I also remember whether it was, I think it was that election, it may have been the subsequent one, I got um, booted off Twitter just before it, maybe two months before it, which really gave me a an earing, eerie foreboding um, of what was, it was a bit like being put in a cyber gulag. And I hadn't done anything that was against the rules. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I, I really, I, you know, there is that question of, well, how, you know, I mean, certainly we've been gaslighted a fair bit saying that, you know, the concerns about the American election were um, were all just uh, conspiracy theory. They, they actually weren't. There were some real problems with that election, not, not the least of which being that Biden got more votes than Obama. There is a lot going on, I think, this coming election. And Andrea Vance actually touched upon it in her piece. There are some electorates that swung to Labour in the last election, which she is predicting will swing back. Um, it was interesting, Manga Kiki is held currently by the government, um, and she was, this is, this is a really interesting comment, she goes, Priyanka uh, Radhakrishnan, a name recognition as minister, what is she the minister of? Was she the diversity minister? I don't, I've never heard of Well, I vaguely heard of her, but I would hardly say that she would have name recognition in most households. No. Uh, is going up against Nationals Greg Fleming and has attracted headlines for only the wrong reasons. Now, did you see the video from someone that questioned him when he was doing a street quarter piece this week? No. They were asking questions around, was he aware of the mandate that was still in place for many health workers, including doctors and nurses? He was completely unaware that that mm. was a thing, like completely unaware. And that in itself is a concern, because when you've got people as member of public, you know, he thought that was all gone. And I think most people do believe that that's all gone. So when you've got Shane Poe turning around saying, what was the number he said? I see a country with 4,000 more nurses and 1,800 more cops. Really, Shane, because there is still at least 1,000 nurses that are, would love to be back at work and aren't because they can't. Yeah. So she sort of called that as, a, as an interesting race. She, for some reason, believes that Islam and Christchurch, that the top candidate potentially might do something there. I don't know. I don't think so. But the other big beasts of the election, she called it, and it actually goes a little bit to your point in terms of those rural voters, is the battleground with Kieran, um, Kieran McNulty and Wairarapa. Now, that's one that I will find really intriguing because I, you know, that is very much a mixed electorate between those who have relocated, the Wellington loveys who have relocated from mm. over the hill onto the onto the wineries and the lifestyle blocks and the farmers. And Wairarapa, I think could potentially go. And the other one she highlighted was Kitty Allen on the East Coast because our Kitty Tapu, yeah, the, the love isn't quite as strong for her as it once was. You don't reckon? Well, some of the people I've been talking at at home certainly are, quite, and this is Māori, are quite disillusioned with her. Mm. Trevor Loudon, who I've just spoken to, you know, we didn't bring up Kitty Tapu, but he has just released a a, a documentary small wasn't piece. that incredible <sighs> unfortunately it does sit behind a paywall it is part of uh, the epoch times and epoch tv it's I called Count your... yeah it's called counterpunch and i will actually we can get that up it's called counterpunch and he did a deep dive on kiritapu and her ground. radical 
yeah. radical background. Her, like so many within that Māori caucus, who had come from an activist background, but not only within New Zealand activism, but activism more internationally. And Trevor has, has actually zoomed out a little bit and looked at the larger picture on that. And it really, it, I, I mean, there was a lot of stuff that I was completely unaware of and the tentacles of where all of those went. And in a way, when you look at those tentacles, sometimes if you're looking at something too closely, you don't see the bigger picture. And I know that you've done a bit of work on this this week, that you've been sort of zooming out a little mm. bit more on some of the aspects that explain so many of the things going on on our current political environment. Yeah, well, I mean, I want things to make sense. And so like any good scientist, I I, uh, I, I look look for, for theories that... Uh, that explain things. Uh, I mean, I've been listening to a really interesting interview between RFK Jr. and Jordan Peterson uh, this week. Uh, RFK Jr. is running for president, and it's almost like there's an element of going back 60 years to when Kennedy was proposing a, a new peaceful world where nations were prosperous and all nations were peaceful rather than... And, and also, you know... Going back to those warnings he made four months before he got his uh, bullet in his head, you know, talking about breaking up the CIA and warning about the military-industrial complex, as uh, Ike Eisenhower had. I was looking at bringing some of uh, the LaRouche organizations. LaRouche, uh, Lyndon LaRouche was a bit of a shady character in some ways, you know, but had quite... I, I only did research on him after I'd watched this really excellent summary of what's actually going on globally. But he was an American political activist um, who founded the LaRouche movement. So he sort of started out being really left and then he went really right. But uh, convicted of fraud, he served five years in prison from 1989 to 1994. So, you know, he's no angel, I guess, but... Colourful chap. Yeah, colourful chap. Uh, th this is a good summary of, of all the various things I've learned about this criminal cabal that wants to rule the world. Schwab and the World Economic Forum always bothers me that I've never seen any reference to the World Economic Forum and the fact that both Hipkins and Ardern, and Simon Power for that matter, were young global leaders. Yet Schwab actually saying proudly, we have penetrated all the cabinets of these countries. You know, so you got Trudeau, there as well, Macron, uh, I think Putin was involved, and uh, Zelensky. Don't take my word for it, but look in that direction because it is interesting. But So the summary of what they want is basically put into seven points. They want basically no sovereignty. So nations submit to the arbitrary global rules-based order. Uh, they want a global currency, central bank digital currency under the control of the International Monetary Fund. Of course, our central bank has, has got several working papers on that. Global governments along the lines of ESG, that's the environmental social governance policy that BlackRock's forcing all of the companies, their major shareholders in to adhere to. And this is where all spending is dictated by these central banks and the technocrats. So the aim here is, is no growth. And this will make sense. But there's actually articles in the paper about the IMF and Standards and Poor's this weekend that absolutely track along that saying we've got to cool the economy so this is to also to destroy efficient energy sources and, and force anyone everyone into energy scarcity so if we look in germany now the 
price of power has gone up 500% since they've dismantled their nuclear systems and obviously since someone has uh, destroyed that pipeline. The number four is dictatorship by corporate cartels. So big pharma, hedge funds, insurance, finance, grain cartels, raw material cartels, etc., who will dictate what spending policies will be. The dictatorship will be backed by global NATO, which will extend into the Pacific with a policy of permanent war, basically. So that gets back to what I was saying about Kennedy. Number six is total censorship directed by media and social media cartels. This gets back to what I'm saying about the media being corrupt. They're corrupt in that they're not telling the whole story when it doesn't suit, I guess, whoever's up the chain of their ownership. And number seven, you'll be pleased to know, Marie, is a culture of wokeness. Oh, my favourite so, pet project. What these guys say, are saying is basically the ultimate aims here are depopulation to weaken the ability of nations to defend themselves while channeling all the wealth to these much less than 1% of the population. I've seen some references, I think, in Neil Ferguson's, the good Neil Ferguson. The good Neil Fer- the Scottish Neil Ferguson. Yeah. He, he was saying in, in a very, very good, characteristically good uh but this week, that there's only about 8,000 people. The people who aren't them outnumber them a million to one. And I think that's something we've got to keep talking about as well. There's a very small number of people who want to do all this crazy stuff. And the problem that we've got is um, people not really confronting that it's bullshit, being unwilling to entertain the possibility. And once you start entertaining the possibility, you find out there is quite a lot of bullshit, actually. You know, outside... The billionaires who control all the major parties in the US, UK, EU, and I'd say apparently New Zealand as well, uh, and a few extreme ideologue, who supports this? And what they've then gone into talk about, and again, this is conspicuous by its absence in New Zealand's media, are the real great reset that's happening. There are various moves. This is along the line of the BRICS stuff, where sovereign nations cooperate for their own sovereign interests. You know, which you'd hope the National Party would be all for, you know, doing what it says on the box and all that. And that's where that's what some countries are now demanding. And that's what will be driving the current wars, I guess, and the wars that we'll be hearing about soon. So in Africa, you know, you've got this move to an African monetary fund, which is backed by gold and raw materials, which is similar to what Gaddafi was talking about before he got regime changed by Hillary Clinton, Obama and NATO back in 2011. Remember that? We came, he died. <laughs> you know, in that witchy kind of way she had. There's a plan out of Africa leader, African leaders to end the war in Ukraine at the moment through a negotiated peace plan that basically includes a secure and neutral Ukraine, but also recognizes the legitimate security rights of Russia. Of course, this, this is re- rejected by Zelensky. I must say, if I was a Ukrainian and my leader said, we're going to fight until the last Ukrainian's dead, I'd think... Uh, It's not a good plan. I don't like that plan. But anyway, these guys love it. The weapons suppliers, the military industrial complex, love it. There's another couple of things. There's a St. Petersburg International Economic Forum. And this has been, again, I've never read anything about this in the paper, but it includes thousands of people from government and business from about 100 countries. The US have tried to frame, Secretary of State Blinken's tried to frame it, that Russia's isolated. But Really, once you start looking at it, it's the West that's increasingly isolated. And, you know, these guys don't really care if the West boycotts it. And also, there's what's happening with China. You know, there's next week, there's the China-Africa Economic and Trade Exposition, 
which will be 50 African countries with the Belt and Road Initiative at, at its center of these discussions. Now, I must confess, I know very little about the Belt and Road. I, I'm really not happy about what a lot of China is doing, and I see it as very sinister. But I'll tell you one thing about China. Whereas America has sort of had this policy for the last how well, centuries of just bombing the crap out of places, you know, while they've been bombing bridges, China's been building infrastructure and bridges. And so they've got this going on with Africa, but also with Arab nations, also with South American nations. So this is a real big deal. And it's got, it's in ascendancy. It's that, you know, I always talk about the collapse of civilizations. This is what's coming next. And so, with China too, is the, they have been funding governments in developing nations now for decades. Yeah, both China and Russia are a lot more flexible on debt. We've got Western nations um, basically driving these client states they've had toward austerity. They're, they're being told, much as the IMF are telling New Zealand now, um, they can't build schools, roads, hospitals, infrastructure until they pay back debt, whereas China and Russia are both more flexible and sometimes forgive debt. But, you know, the West telling them you can't afford to become a modern nation, we're going to tell you what to do. We're going to give you, you know, solar because, you know, you can't have the coal that we've had to get where we are. And so, yeah, America's sending envoys out to threaten nations to get them out of these organisations. Blinken's asked to attend, you know, the BRICS conference as an observer, but he hasn't been granted it. In response to this, the transatlantic forces have, have launched a series of basically provocative military exercises in Eastern Europe. And at the same time, you've got uh, the president of Belarus now, you know, has these nuclear weapons in his country and says he won't hesitate to use it. So these guys, you know, do you factor in also the fact that the FBI are now admitting that there's a document saying that Biden took five million in bribes, it looks like, from um, the Ukraine uh, when he was vice president? It's an explosive situation. And yeah, again, this really brings that whole, you love saying brouhaha, and I notice you haven't said it, so I'll use the brouhaha for the, uh, about the national radio reporter changing uh, stories to include some pro-Russian information. I mean, you know, when there's that much pressure on journalists, you, you bet that journalists are going to think twice before they say anything about any of the stuff. As I said, don't take my word for it, but that's a good place to start looking if you want the news to make a bit more sense. And to that point, so just to give you an exact example of what you've talked about, this is Liam Dan's Herald on Sunday. Harden up New Zealand, this was the recession we needed to have. Yeah. It's pretty simple. We had a pandemic and had to shut the country down to save lives. No, we didn't, Liam. Yeah. No, In my we mind, didn't. it's simple. We borrowed to get through that. We've lived beyond our means for three years. We're now going through a process of payback. We're going through the process of removing demand from the economy to reduce inflation. I love the very liberal use of the word we. Yeah, I don't remember voting for that. No, I didn't vote for that either. And I, I, I was stunned at the lockdown because I arrived back into New Zealand days before they closed the border. I'd been away on business and I was absolutely stunned that they were doing this. But more than that, once they locked, not first they closed the borders and then about two weeks later, three weeks later, they locked us down. And 
as a business owner, I just remember thinking to myself, well, it's all well and good to shut us down without throwing in all the civil liberty aspects with that. But what is the cost of business? How do you reopen that up? And there was no consideration for that whatsoever. And we are paying the price for this government following a model that came from, drumroll please, it came from China. I mean, mm. all these Western countries followed the Chinese model. In well, order throughout to, the plans for a pandemic. Which they'd only just modelled months previously. Yeah. And, you know, public policy in terms of public health, all of that got thrown out on its ear mm. in unison. Yeah. Well, and, and the CIA and various other of these organizations had drilled it. I think we said it on an earlier show, and they hadn't drilled, well, okay, how do we get vitamin C to everyone? And how do we, you know, get everyone to maintain their health? It was about how do we use social media and the media to get Western nations to pivot towards authoritarianism at once, like a flock of starlings, as I say in a column. Some bits missing that you've got to know in order for the paper to make sense. And once it does make sense... The Liam Dan's, oh, it's simple. It all looks a bit sinister because really, really playing the tune that the pipers are getting them to pay. Gosh, we've had a lot to talk about this morning. Mm. Let's finish off with a story that was actually the first one that I plucked out and discussed with you um, a few days back. We've both been doing a little digging on this and it was one that kind of tugged at my heartstrings sort of having experience that. It's the story around Jamie Lupton, who's the fiance of Nick Mowbray. Now, Nick Mowbray is one of the siblings that has Zuru toys. So if you're a mum and dad out there, you'll know all about Bunch of Balloons. So she in herself is an exceptionally accomplished uh, businesswoman. She owns a company called Monday Hair Care, which is global, on her own, is looking at doing 200 million in retail sales this year. So she in herself is also very, very accomplished. Now, her and Nick were expecting a baby, and she lost that child at 24 weeks in March of this year. So she had a stillbirth, and it, and she has been going through a lot of fertility issues in order to conceive this child. It is a story that so many people in this country have been touched by in regards to infertility. If you are somebody who has experienced either infertility or a stillbirth or multiple miscarriage, it's uh, in the review section in the Herald on Sunday. It is actually a really well-written, poignant piece. And part of that, I believe, it's because it was written by Jane Fair. She has obviously written it from a place of experience. There were some statistics that I found really amazing. So whilst I haven't suffered from infertility in the sense of conception, I did suffer from multiple miscarriages, which wasn't diagnosed until after I'd had the third, I've had five. And mm. a couple of those have been second trimester. And she talks about, you know, the labor she had losing their child. And I have to admit having one, lost one at a similar stage and have gone through that, it's it sticks with you. It is, it's a really difficult thing. Yeah. 
it was really interesting. And I sent this, this to you late last night because we were diving into some of the numbers around this. And when I was going through all of this, one of the things I was told multiple times by the obstetrician and by people in my prenatal care was, look, this happens to one in five women, Marie. It's quite common. It is just something you have to work through. This is before the genetic diagnosis. And I was like, okay, that's fine. And the first thing I noticed is how on the Royal College of Midwives site, that one in five is now all of a sudden is one in four. Yeah, incredible. We had similar um, issues, I think, before our first child and between our second two. Second two were, were born in fast order. I sympathise with that because I know, you know, then every pregnancy you have subsequently, you're really on uh, just walking on eggshells. People take for granted that you can have kids and there's a real feeling of being cheated when you uh, career and booze away your 20s and then you think, right, okay, my plan is now to have a child just before I'm I'm 30 and then it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't happen. happen. I mean, look, to be fair, I mean, she's been trying since sort of late 20s, so she has certainly not done the let's wait Um, Let's wait until things get settled before we do it. And full credit for her for that. You know, she certainly has not done that. But the other piece of, um, so stillbirths, I looked up, there's not a lot of data. This is what sparked this question, is you sent me a text last night saying, have I come across any current data? And I did a bit of a dive around and I got the Mr. Marie to do a bit of diving around as well. And what we could find from a New Zealand perspective is there was pretty much nothing since 2017. Did you strike that when you were doing it? I, uh, yeah, I just struck uh, a lot of gaslighting yeah, around, you know, th- there's no impact on fertility uh, from the, the Pfizer jab when really they didn't give it to pregnant women in the trials because it's not ethical to do so, which that was probably one of the things that shocked me the most about the mandating, that you could mandate a, a pregnant woman who a woman who's trying to give birth out for not wanting um, a relatively new pharmaceutical agent injected into it and it you know well it's just the illogical nature of it if you're pregnant and you're told that you can't eat ham from the supermarket how on earth can you have I mean that was the line in the sand that I had so when I did the research just to have a look at some of these numbers because that one in four number leapt out at me straight away because I knew that one in five number it was something that was told to me again and again and again Mm. as a way of comfort it didn't give me a lot of comfort at the time but it was indelibly sort of burnt into my brain. So then when I dived in and had a look and did a search, there were two stories, one that cropped up one after the other. One was the Health Research Council of New Zealand, and the other one was the sharp increase in stillbirth risk if baby quiet in the evening, and that came from the University of Auckland. The University of Auckland story was released in July of 2019, and they found that one in every 500 women in New Zealand will experience a late stillbirth, losing her baby at or after 28 weeks of pregnancy, which is what is considered a stillbirth after 28 weeks. Meanwhile, the Health Research Council of New Zealand they did decrease in late stillbirths possibly linked to more pregnant women sleeping on their side. Okay, so we went from quiet in the evening to sleeping on their side. That story story was released in November 2021, and here's the kicker. Late stillbirth, third trimester from 28 weeks of pregnancy onwards, currently affects around one in every 400 pregnant women in New Zealand. Wow. So 20% drop. 
Over what period? Nine, 2019 to... So from 2019, it was one in every 500. And by November 2021, one in every 400 mm. are experiencing stillbirths. Dot, dot, dot. Just saying. I, I know that correlation well, is found, a causation, but... Absolutely incredible uh, bit of data out of Australia with that as well, didn't you, in terms of the birth rates? Is, was there a source on that? Yes, that was from Mr. Marie. He did that digging for me. This is straight from the Statistista Research Department, which I think is the Australian Statistics Department. So this right, is so reliable. Reliable data. This is the number of births in Australia per thousand. Okay, mm. so this is from 2011 to 2022. From 2011 all the way down to 2019, it was anywhere between 302 births per thousand to 311 births per thousand. Pretty stable, though, right? decline. Pretty so three, stable. 302, 312, 307, 310, yep. 306, 311. Yep, slight dip in 2020 um, to 293. So obviously lockdown meant that there wasn't a lot of shagging going on. Or not as much. You With would have thought. Hating. I know, they possibly <laughs> weren't enjoying their time at home. Um, but then that's okay. Well, no, but that's all right. Because um, maybe there was. Maybe well, it there was because it bounced up in, yeah, in 2021 to 315 so okay obviously they rekindled they their rekindled their joy and, and made up but then in 2022 it went from 300 and so essentially around 300 births per thousand in australia to 150 births per thousand so it halved tanked that's incredible i mean that, that's and the fact that that's you know, there's, as we said, there's a lot of stories about people struggling to conceive yeah, uh, in the it, paper. There's, there's one in each weekend anyway, at least, isn't there? Yeah, this, pretty much. Yeah. And it is just, you know, and if you are a parent, if you are someone out there trying to conceive, you know, you'd certainly have my sympathies. It is a really tough time. And all I You're can say, too. yeah, and all I can say is, look, just keep trying um, yeah. and stay positive. But And also relax. I was reading Jamie Lupton's story, and yeah, people constantly congratulate Lupton on her business success, not knowing that she often drives home from work in tears, crying over the one thing in the world she wants the most. You know, stress isn't good for conception either, so it's, it gets harder and harder to do. But yeah, if you can limit stress, that cliche that people give up and stop trying and then fall pregnant, that, that happened to my brother and his wife. Mm. She got told there was absolutely no chance, it wasn't even worth doing even any point of doing IVF and then, you know, boom, they, they had a, a, a kid and um, it is It's a mysterious and, beast uh, and it is, yeah, very, very difficult. That figure, you know, let's just say it again. The number of births in Australia, 2021, 315, more than halved in 2022. The fact that that's not, as I said, I searched... Uh, for Ashley Bloomfield giving a crap about this in vain. Could not find any even slight concern about New Zealand's plunging birth rate. Because don't forget, I mean, it'd be, and again, there's, we couldn't find any data for New Zealand for this. Surprise, surprise. But whatever data there is will be coming on top of the 25% decline in birth rate between 2010 and 2020. 
when these guys say one of the aims is depopulation, make of that what you will, but make of it what you will in light of those figures and the absolute lack of discussion about them. Mm, absolutely, and the follow-on effects for all of those as well. I noticed um, before we go, there's a, the story in, um, in the Sunday Star Times, Chinese Navy confronts New Zealand frigate in South China Seas. And that was from an incident that happened in 2018. And that was something Sam mentioned on the show a couple of weeks back. But there's no crediting of him as being the person who brought it up. So it's nice to know the media are listening to us, even if they're still in that first they ignore you phase. I'll tell you what, chaps, you won't be able to ignore us for long. Ah, and if you want to hear more of this good content, yep, catch Marty, Cam, Olivia Pearson with Paul Brennan over on our political panel on a Friday morning. Uh, thank you again, Marty. We will be back. Marty and I will be back as always next week. Remember, if you want to share your comments, disagree with us, put in some ideas, do contact us, inbox at realitycheck.radio. All the text number is 2057. A shout out to it to John. John sent yeah. us a couple of bits of yeah. feedback. It, yeah. really, it really does. Uh, Hope you've enjoyed this week, John. Where it is nice to get um, people saying that uh, my not ever going to broadcasting school isn't uh, hampering us putting, putting on a good show. So that's well, nice. ne- Neither of us, yeah. yeah. All right. No, I didn't. Oh, gosh, d- darling, no tertiary education here. <laughs> <laughs> All well, right, thanks every- again, Yep, awesome. And uh, see you next week. Have a good week, everyone. And don't disappear here with RCR. I've still got the vocabulary woke word of the week to come here with Counterculture. It's time for the vocabulary word of the week. The woke word of the week is where we look at words, phrases and language that make up the lexicon often deployed by those in critical social justice. And today's word of the week, woman. Classic definition, an adult human female. This now appears to be one of the most dangerous words in the English language. The erasure of the word woman and the inability for our leaders to actually verbalise its definition is frankly frightening. Culminating this past week with John Hopkins University in their new glossary for LGBTQ terms lists a lesbian as being a non-man attracted to non-men. Yet a gay man is a man who is attracted to other men. This is a further example that as women, we have to be increasingly vigilant to the manipulation of language so it does not erase us forever. I'm pleased to say that the absolute outcry in recent days has seen the retractions of this glossary. Well, for now, at least. Thank you for joining me this week for another dose of counterculture. Keep your feedback coming to inbox at realitycheck.radio or drop us a text to 2057. You've been listening to Counterculture with Marie Buskey on RCR, RCR. Reality Check Radio. Radio. Radio.